goddamn club, aren't I? My name is Horace. video it's fine and uh like i was telling justin i finally got my i found the cord to my microphone so i've got my old kind of uh skype interview set up back online so hopefully it sounds good we're we're used to it rough and tumble man (laughs) all right andre so i think the we're definitely going to dive deep into monster squad and the squad documentary but i'm just going to give you the floor right off uh, out of the gates here and just let you tell everybody how you got into acting at the uh, at your young age and landed the lead role in the monster squad okay so oh i do that yeah yeah, that's you (laughs) (laughs) i thought we'd like no we're just we're already in here right okay we're in here we're recording no no fancy intro nothing like uh we do that all post editing yeah we handle it in post (laughs) you've heard the term (laughs) fix it in post great well um as a lot of people know that i um have been in this industry for well hell i'm old now so it's uh i've been in for a long time i started when i was five and uh you know did a lot of um commercials and print work quite a bit of television at a, in, in the single digit years my sister is a little bit older than i was and um she's really sort of the main reason that um, I'm even in this industry because she started working, you know, a little bit before I did because she's about six years older than I am. And uh, she worked quite a bit throughout the 70s and early 80s. And I was always sort of around it. And uh, it just became sort of uh, the next, I was the next one in line, I guess, when we were doing stuff like that in this family. So uh, she worked quite a bit. Uh, She's actually, if anybody remembers um, the big disaster movies of the 70s, like uh, Airport and the Poseidon Adventure, and right. the best one, which is The Towering Inferno. The Towering Inferno, to me, is the best one of all of them. And she happens to be the little girl in The Towering Inferno. So uh, that's oh, my cool. older sister. She's the one that uh, you meet at the beginning of the movie and uh, Paul Newman saves when the fire starts. So that's sort of, you know, kind of really the simple entree into me being into the, uh, you know, film and TV world. And, you know, it just kind of got... Uh, you know, I was born and raised in L.A., so you're kind of right in the middle of it. It didn't have to do one of these things where, you know, you get uprooted and your family moves to, you know, North Hollywood or Studio City or Burbank for six months out of every year like a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just sort of there and in it. And it became, you know, when you start out that early, it's not to some kids or to some performers, it's uh, it's uh, your other world gets diminished. Like your the real world gets diminished because they concentrate only on the entertainment professional world. And then sometimes there's, you know, kids in the business that uh, their professional entertainment life uh, gets diminished a little bit because it's not, you know, the the lead factor. So they, um, you know, that's diminished. 
I think we did a pretty good job of having a you know pretty good balance because uh, I was fortunate enough to work a lot. Uh, I worked a lot more than most. I didn't work as much as some others. Uh, but I you know I went from project to project and did a ton of stuff and I think we had a good balance of you know kind of entertainment world life and what I call you know regular world life. I don't call it normal world life because I know normal, <laughs> but uh, you know like non industry life as a kid. And when I wasn't working, I went to regular school. I loved going to school. That's what everybody gets a kick out of. They're like, you're crazy. I hated school. I was like, I loved school. <laughs> Dude, you got a hell of a pedigree. I mean, just sitting here looking at you, everything, A-Team, Highway to Heaven, Night Court, TJ Hooker, Twilight Zone, Remington Steel, that freaking show The Wizard that I thought nobody knew about. <laughs> I mean, this is cool. All you need to do is to be on Mr. Wizard and have that old man sitting there barking at you for not understanding science, and you would have like a fully round table here. This is cool. Well, well except for I would understand the science because that was my favorite shit as I was a kid. I loved it. But, yeah, you, you rattled off, you know, a bunch of awesome, you know, kind of – guest spot opportunities and you know a lot of us got those opportunities when we were working and then the other side i always kind of it's sort of a celebration slash lamentation of sort of my career as a kid in this business because uh you know a lot of awesome you know faces and names that we all know that you know we grew up together you know are known for doing one show that went five or six or 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the ones that did five or six shows that only went one season instead of the other way around. <laughs> so, and then, you know, we all get these awesome opportunities to go to do um, great guest spots and, you know, yeah, it's uh, that's some of the, and those cool guest spots are a lot of my friends favorite type of thing to talk about. You know, like you mentioned, um, I, you know, I run down a list of cool stuff and uh, you know, not, I don't think there's anybody else that's uh, ever chopped down a tree with Mr. T and has <laughs> ridden in kit and, you know, done a bunch of other <laughs> crazy stuff that everybody only kind of dreams about. But uh, I, I was there and I did it. So I get to have the reality of it. I don't know if that's different. What led you to uh, actually getting cast for the Monster Squad? Like what actually what was the impetus for that? Somebody, you know, some people have the different stories. I forget them. Um, well, Lord, what was I thinking of? Was it the Explorers? There was one movie, it seemed like, that Johnny Depp went and applied for in uh, River Phoenix, and then it, it didn't. So, it, never mind. Because <laughs> I'm just going to sound like a fucking idiot. Without well, River, River, but it was the Explorers. Uh, it was Ethan some, Hawk yeah. And, uh, yeah and thank River. you. Yeah. Thank you. And it was Ethan Hawke went to try out. No, he got in it. Who was it? Exactly. One of them went and didn't get it because Ethan Hawke ended up getting it. Well, that, not, that happens every single time. That's not an anomaly. That's just the casting process because it's basically, you know, it's an audition, you know, process for, uh, you know, just anything, everything. There's very few actors that get handed a role right off the bat. You know, I got, I ended up getting to a point where that happened eventually, which was great. Um, but, you know, normally it's, uh, you get submitted or, you know, casting director or producers call and request for you to come in and read for a role that they have you in mind for. And you come in, you, you know, you read a couple scenes and you work with the casting director and, you know, for monster squad, particularly, um, you know, kind of the, the story that a lot of fans know and, and some don't, uh, is that I, I never auditioned one line of dialogue for the role of Sean. <laughs> and um, I, I actually originally auditioned and screen tested for the role of Rudy. 
And so I never read any of Sean's lines in any audition session. So uh, because up up and just prior to that casting process for that film, all my body of work had been the kid with the cool jacket and the great hair with a lot of hair product. And so I had done three or four roles that kind of were similar to that leading up to, you know, the summer of 86 or whatever, when they started casting that and we started shooting in October. So I read for Rudy. And, um, you know, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call and, you know, the agent calls you and says, hey, you got cast in, you know, that that movie you read for a couple weeks ago. And, you know, because you're if you're active in the industry at that time, you're reading, you're auditioning almost daily for stuff. So you're, you know, whether if you're working on the set, then you're just going to not auditioning. But if you're in the audition process and you're, you know, open free agency, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to school and then you're getting in the car and you're driving all over town and going to auditions all afternoon and all evening. And, um, you know, sometimes there's more than three or four a day for, you know, five days a week. And, um, you know, they called and said, you got that, you know, you got cast in that, that movie that uh, with the monsters in it. And I was like, <laughs> awesome. And they're like, well, except for not the role that you read for. And I was like, ah, shit. Because usually that means usually if that ever happens, that's usually means you got a different role that's probably diminished from your original one. If you get cast in something else, it's very rare that you, you know, read for a role and then you get the lead. So uh, they just, I, I was surprised that they never called me in and, and wanted to even talk or read, read me for the, for the lead. Uh, but that, you know, I always, I always appreciated that, uh, you know, that, that week in 86 when, uh, you know, especially after the fact, you realize that, uh, hey, you read for a different role, but you got straight cast as the lead. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is, uh I know for a fact all the other kids that read for all the other roles, including Rudy and Ryan Lambert went in there and absolutely hammered it and, you know, gave them no other choice except for him as Rudy. And they were totally right. And, uh, you know, I, they put me in the role of the kind of bossy and sufferable know-it-all tell everybody what to do. So yeah, everybody was perfectly in the right. <laughs> were y'all uh, familiar with each other? Were y'all, friends before the casting of the film or did you know any of the other co-stars in it before y'all were cast into that the only the only other cast member that members that i had known uh were robbie kiger who played patrick mm-hmm. i had grown up with robbie for years i knew him quite well and i knew michael faustino because he was my friend david faustino's younger brother mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know but you know at the time of filming michael was you know six years old and so, you know, when you're hanging out with, you know, the older brother earlier, I mean, he's probably two, three, four. So you weren't really friends with Michael, but I knew him because he was friends with someone that I, or he was the brother of someone I was friends with. Ryan and I actually met for the first time about two or three weeks before we started shooting. And uh, we were at a party and we realized it's like, oh, hey, there's you. And he said, hey, there's you. And I said, hey, we're doing a movie together next month. And so let's hang out. <laughs> and then uh, we became friends and we shot the movie and rest is history <laughs> when did you guys uh, become aware of the monster squad craze how long did that take you know it really wasn't until that you know because the movie came out and bombed you know it uh, you know it was actually a, 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 def- <laughs> a definitive box office failure and it went dormant for about 19 years and, you know, now growing up and going through high school and going to college and living elsewhere for many years, you know, people would pop in and people knew it, you know, you know, guys like yourself, you'd run into them like, oh, shit, you know, I that's I've actually seen that movie and we'd all be surprised. 
But it wasn't really until the spring of 2006 when the Alamo Drafthouse, the original one in downtown Austin, Texas, had a kind of retro cast reunion screening. And they found a 35-millimeter print, which at the time was the only one that anybody knew that a collector had to use. Um, I'm actually now friends with those guys that own that print. They're in the documentary. Um, So that print and that weekend event at the Alamo Drafthouse, it was on Easter weekend in, in 2006, and, you know, they just didn't know. They were like, you know, we just want to put this up because they always do. That was kind of their staple. That was what they were known for is doing cool stuff like that and retro screenings. And they put it together and didn't know what they were going to have. And we got invited and didn't know what we were going to do. And, like, this is either going to be really cool and have a free weekend in Austin or it's going to be really <laughs> lame. And have a free no weekend in Austin. And either way, you have a free weekend in Austin. And, boy, were we surprised when they – uh, they they had to add an, a second screening, which they weren't expecting because they had such a demand. And they sold out of both of those. They could have had a third screening, probably, honestly, that same night. But, uh, you know, you know, two Q&As and two autograph sessions. And we kind of realized that there was a fan base there that had started to come together, you know, via the Internet and early social media back in 06 that they're like, hey, you know, oh, you're a Monster Squad fan. You're a Monster Squad fan. Like, you know, let's hang out and let's, you know, oh, you have a Stevie King rule shirt. Yeah, I made my own, you know, back in eighth grade or something. And it just started to kind of build. And we thought it was kind of a neat phenomenon. And then, you know, it was, you know, they all asked, you know, even that weekend, you know, when's the DVD coming out? Because it had never been re-released. When the movie bombed, you know, the next year it came out on VHS and everybody we know now hammered it at the local video <laughs> right. store, you know, whether they rented it every weekend or, you know, stole it or, you know, just stole it, whatever they did. And then it was on HBO that next year too, which made a big impact. So that's really kind of the three places people originally saw it, but they hadn't seen it. Most people hadn't seen it in a theater or on 35 and they all hammered that Alamo draft house that evening and had seen the movie for the, most of them for the first time in widescreen. Uh, without pan and scan or, you know, you know, you know, cut up something or, or, or uh, you know, remastered in some god awful way, which you cut off a third of the image yeah. and which is a lot of the HBO version and the VHS version. It's not in widescreen. So there's a lot of images that you don't see uh, unless you see that movie in widescreen. He didn't know it was going to blow up like it did. And because of that event, um, you know, we started doing you know, giant conventions and, you know, appearances all over that 35 millimeter print went all over the world every weekend to screen somewhere after that. Um, I, sometimes they'd fly me in to meet the print somewhere and do a screening at some small theater or some big cineplex somewhere, whether it was, you know, San Francisco or Burlington, Iowa, or something like that, it would be, you know, going to a lot of these cool places. And that event created the fan fervor, which created that 20th anniversary DVD. Uh, which Lionsgate ended up putting out because they had the rights at the time, and they absolutely hammered it by putting out a product that they didn't know they had that had value. And so when the DVD came out a year later, and then it just it just went bonkers from there, and it, it sort of went nonstop. And you know we thought it would kind of end after about you know maybe a year or two. Like ah, everybody, okay, they've got their taste and they've seen it. They bought their DVD. All right, everybody's got it. It's over. Bye. And boy, did that not happen. I mean, yeah, here we are. Kept it kept yes. growing and growing. That's not going to happen. Sorry. That I now realize. That I now realize. No, you and guys. And that's really what kind of spurned what was the uh, kind of 
impetus and the inspiration for making a documentary because the documentary is not about making of the movie. It's not about, you know, where are they now? And honestly, it's not your typical fan service doc, which, you know, we have a lot of, we see that some are good, some are awful. Um, you know, we, you know, I made sure that we avoided that too. So it's, it's, it's not a making of, we cover a little of that. It's not a where are they now or where they look like now, but we have some of that. Uh, and it's not a fan, straight fan service doc, although it serves that purpose a little bit. This documentary is really about that dynamic of how these people connected with this movie whenever they did and for whatever reason and how strong that connection is and how they passed it on to even a second generation <laughs> and how this movie impacted them unlike anything else that, that we've really kind of seen, right? And that's the story I wanted to tell because all of these individuals I met over, you know, seven, eight, nine years of dealing with conventions and appearances of this resurgence fascinated me and the stories just got more compelling. And, you know, and, you know, you hear, you know, dozens and dozens a day at a convention or something. And I'm like, there's something really interesting here. This movie connected with people for some reason, and I want to know why. And uh, so let's look into that. And, um, and then it turned into what the doc turned into, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about and was proud of the way we put it together. So you said it was, you know, 19 years that the movie basically lay dormant. What was your relationship to the movie in those 19 years? Did you look at it fondly or was it more like a job that had come and gone and you were moving on to bigger things? You know, a little bit of both, I guess. Uh, I, 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 I never looked at it negatively, you know, as for what it was, because I know the work that put into it. I know the work that we as a cast did it. I know the work that Fred and Shane put into writing and trying to get made. It just, it was a little baffling about why it, uh, you know, didn't succeed in a box office, which in 1987 in America, that's all that counted. Nothing else mattered. But, you know, we were kind of hoping that would be kind of big. You know, there were some movies at the time, uh, you know, for the last year or two prior to that, and then even in the next year, that an ensemble of kids were actually the main driving force and the main, and the main characters. And, you know, we were ready for the, the action figures and the sequel and, uh, you know, all that. And it just absolutely tanked. And at the time, we didn't really understand. But, uh, you know, years later, you look into it and you can realize kind of where the problems were. And it was mostly in a few things um, like marketing, um, the ad campaign, the marketing campaign for it was bad. And um, it wasn't bad. It just didn't work. And the rating didn't help it. The trailer that they cut for it, which got released in front of other movies and, you know, on TV ads uh, was very dark and scary. But then the write-ups and everything were made like it was really super kids campy movie. So it confused an audience. And, you know, with a PG-13 rating, uh, you know, the parents weren't going to take their under 13s and go to this movie with them because they saw it and said, I saw the trailer. I'm, I'm not taking my 11-year-old to this. And then I always realized and figured out that the movie itself was a little too much for the 9, 10, 11-year-olds, but it was a little too kid-like for the cool kids that were 14, 15, and 16. Yeah. You know, and, you know, if you had a car, you were probably not going to this movie. You were going to go see The Lost Boys. And <laughs> right. so, what, in essence, what was weird is what they also didn't know, and it ties in with marketing, because it didn't exist back then. I think we made the first tween movie. I really do. Awesome. Because now, now that's a thing. And it's specific content, it's specific type of characters, and uh, and specific marketing for that audience. 
uh, and, it, and it captures it. I mean, look, I always joke, like, if they had known that at that time it was a tween movie, we would have made, like, Monster Squad 11 Breaking Dawn by now. You know, it's, uh, we would have been, like, the Twilight series or something. But Maybe so. You guys were – this movie – because let me see it's hard maybe if i can try to get because i'm not quite to this is how you know we're all great friends so great in fact i don't know how old some of my co-hosts are but uh, <laughs> when monster squad came out i was seven so i am I, I have no other term because i'm not a gen x and i'm not a millennial i'm like i'm i'm the nintendo generation i'm right. those kids that you know with the masters of the universe transformers and the nintendo entertainment system so that when monster squad came out i was seven and you nailed that whenever you said one thing was the rating was a draw because I remember there was something about that movie. It was basically the Goonies with monsters was the that was the playground pitch. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, now this is the perspective of a seven year old. I was probably eight whenever I first saw it. If it hit HBO and renting it, and that I had no idea it tanked. I just knew it was the Monster Squad. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. We always watched it, and ha- I would always rent it at Halloween, which my parents didn't know because, you know, I was over a friend's house because they had a bad rating. <laughs> and, I mean, I can see that now in hindsight, but, yeah, as a kid, I didn't know that. And it sucks that just – it kind of sucks to think that you might have lived for 20 years, and um, now you're starting to understand maybe quite the effing impact that that movie actually had on people like me. Who now, I have a 15-year-old kid who has grown up that is one of our yearly traditions is Ernest Scared Stupid Monster Squad. It's just, <laughs> that's one, like I said, it's Goonies with Monsters. Right, and double yeah, double. you're right. As far as the, uh, one of the first tween movies, it actually is. It just, it's, I'm just curious to, like you said, maybe it was bad marketing or just it was too dark because it, the movie was huge on the playground. And as far as I'm concerned, that was the only place that existed when I was growing up was my freaking playground. <laughs> so, I mean, and, you know, it's that's, an inter- that's an interesting thing at the time because a lot of movies that are actually good don't get the chance to be the word of mouth successes. And studios and theater changed like ah, it didn't hit the quota that we needed in the first three days. It's got to go make room for something else. Sucks, and they just man. cut their losses. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, over the last, you know, over the last 10 or 12 years, and especially, you know, researching and interviewing, you know, people such as yourself for the documentary, you, you know, those are the stories that you heard. And, you know, the greatest stories is like, hey, you know, I went and saw this, you know, on a Saturday morning and then turned around and went right back in and saw it again. And then I went home, got my friends in the cul-de-sac and then brought them to the theater the next day. So I saw it a second or third time. And then the, the, the opposite is true when they didn't see it, but someone brought the VHS tape from the video store and brought it to the cul-de-sac or the playground mm-hmm. and said, you've got to come to my house and watch this movie. And that's, that's what I think is really the initial seed of creating the success, quote-unquote, of what it is with the fans. It's that personal connection, mm-hmm. and it's the interpersonal connection that this movie created between friends and then family and things like that. That uh, that really made it connect and, and made it last, because if you it had been a giant box office success and everybody had seen it like oh my god we love it it's great and I bought a pair of Adidas and um, and then it went away I don't think it would have had the lasting power because it would just sort of had that initial superficial kind of flash and everyone like oh I remember that that was huge yeah I bought like a crazy pair of Adidas because you're wearing Adidas boy that was dumb <laughs> but to create that 
hey, man, you've got to go see this movie. Or have you have you never seen this? You've got to come to my house and watch it because I ripped it off HBO or I stole it from my video store or, you know, because I did or didn't see it in the movie theater. And that's what created that that legacy of that initial 20 years of being completely it. It was dormant, but it was not abandoned. It was just it, it was burning under the surface. It had to grow organically. You have it, built it an entire cult in a fan base basically exactly the way it should be like i the fans did it some of my other like shows that i've been on talking about movies like american ninja that i was telling people before it's like look you can't pay for that kind of advertisement that fucking word of mouth advertisement for american ninja on the playground at school i really have a hard time quantifying (laughs) the monetary (laughs) value that Hollywood wishes that they could have with that. and But I say that to say the same with Monster Squad. Goonies and Monster Squad were never too far away from the conversation. It was always synonymous. The closer it got to Halloween, the closer and more often we talked about Monster Squad, and it was cyclical. But again, it just I guess it had to grow organically because, yeah, for whatever marketing, you really can't do for that. I mean, I, could, I was Duncan Reeder for Halloween, like that <laughs> version of Dracula. <laughs> Yeah. I was that. I had the cloak. I had the brooch. I oh, had the yeah. widow's peak. Yeah. I mean, dude, I had that shit looking good. I <laughs> actually looked more like two Oldsmobiles hitting Bella Lugosi if I look at a picture now. <laughs> but back then, I looked like Duncan Rieger. Okay, so yeah. I'm gonna go with that one. But it just the the organic nature of that movie and the way it had to grow. Yeah, you can't pay for that advertisement. It just sucks that you have to build. <laughs> you have to go for the long game on that one. The investment qualities. And what's interesting is I was at least uh, I feel I was fortunate enough to be a recipient of the success of that kind of fan base central organic growth, mm-hmm. and then I I saw an opportunity. And I said, "This is interesting. I want to tell that story of that dynamic and how to do that." And then I got my you know my other castmates involved, and you know they all they were all great, but that delay everybody celebrates and it's like, well, you know, it's awesome. And no, it was my favorite thing. And I'm glad the world knows about my favorite movie. Now uh, that has a different impact on someone like Fred Decker, who, you know, shortly after, you know, the next year, you know, directed his third feature as like a 26 year old that also didn't perform well. And he goes into director jail for 20 years and is, you know, is never allowed to direct anything basically because he had a three movies that underperformed Mm. yet, yet two of those three movies are a lot of people's favorite movies of all time. And that means something, except mm-hmm. for to Fred's damaged career. Uh, and he's one of, he's the most interesting story to me in that dynamic uh, that we even kind of could talk about in the documentary. Um, he's, he's the, he's the anti interview. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally different story uh, from his perspective. And it's very, very interesting you know, how that's played out in the last, you know, 10 or 12 years. He was only 26 when he did Monster Squad? Yeah, he was uh, 25 or 26 when they wrote it and we made it. And then, you know, he because he did Night of the Creeps the year before. Uh-huh. And then Monster Squad. I love that movie. And then, um, and it, 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 what's great is while he was shooting Night of the Creeps is when he got word that Monster Squad was greenlit and being funded. And so there's a little homage to monster squad uh in night of the creeps in the bathroom when the lead when the lead character the handicap is getting killed in the mm-hmm. bathroom on the back tile there's a little piece of graffiti that says go monster squad and um and then when we were shooting monster squad uh you know shane black who the first thing he'd ever written was monster squad got made 
and he he submitted another screenplay while we were shooting Monsters World called Lethal Weapon, and uh, that got bought <laughs> and uh, blew up, and his career went the opposite direction as as Fred's, and um, you know, so it was just a weird dynamic of that that fall of '86 and summer of '87. Um, yeah, and Fred and Shane were only like 26, 27 years old at the time. Damn. Damn. I, I hate that because his Decker is now an icon in the industry, what I would call like the VHS era, honestly, is because there really is no other term other than the fact that whatever you say, you know, it's got for and this has now become a term of endearment. But when you say like the shitty horror movies from the 80s, like, dude, Decker is a god now. They got Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad. Like I, that goes without saying we're talking to you about Monster Squad. That's just that's a darn shame. I yeah. mean, you know, Shane Black, yeah. of course, he deserves what he gets because those are good movies and all. But it just sucks. It sucks to hear that about Decker. Like, if I could ever meet the man to be able to sit and tell him, like, dude, <laughs> you have no idea. Of course, that don't pay the bills, but you have no idea the throngs of kids. I'm speaking for myself <laughs> that these movies have inspired. Well, and that's what's. Um you know, with someone like Fred, because, you know, I, I still know him and I still know him very well. And um, he was, you know, gracious enough to sit down and actually talk about this, which he usually doesn't uh, for the document on camera and telling how much this impacted him and what he felt about it. You know, he, he understands that he gets it, uh, it. But to him, it's very hard to yeah. to relate and, and to make sense out of it, because uh, for a couple of years, you know, so he would be. He would be bitter about it, and then other time he'd just be kind of incredulous, like I don't understand, you know, how this is happening. Um, and then, you know, just sort of the first couple of years were confusing because everybody thought it was just sort of like this kind of flash in the plan nostalgia. Like I said, we all thought it would end after about a year or two, right. and we realized it wasn't kind of just like this kind of dopamine grab, like nostalgic fix, or you know, it's like you get you know someone likes your post on Instagram, you're like, ooh, I feel good today. They came out. And they made it last, and they ex- they expressed why it's so important to them. And it was totally different than any other time of fan interaction that I've had. You know, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough, like we mentioned before, to do a bunch of other TV. I've done some other films, and I'm known for a lot of that stuff as well. And being, you know, kind of in the teen magazine type era of the late '80s. Um, which is obviously pre-internet. So, you know, that that's the internet of your celebrity kind of, you know, teen world back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Ryan was around it as well. And he did another huge kind of kid cult popular show, Kids Incorporated, which was gigantic. Oh, popular. God, yeah. There's still some Kids Inc. fans, that are, but it's not the same thing as Monster Squad fans. It, Kids Inc. is fun. And they're kind of, you know, the, the teen crush fans of, of that show. But Monster Squad fans, it's different. I mean, it affected their life. It affected, you know, their like what they wanted to be when they grew up. Uh, they they show it to their kids. You know, I've got two guys here showing it to their kids, and those are two different age ranges. You know, the fifteen and the six. You know, it's crazy for us to go around and hear that six or seven, eight year olds not only are being shown but watching Monster Squad, and then let alone loving it. That's insane. The difference is like. Nine is the new thirteen, and seven is the is you know, and seven is the new nine, right? Because kids are a little bit older than they were right. back in the day. But um, to have that means that the story or the characters or they connect with uh, are timeless, and the archetypes and the themes or whatever they connect with. And the only thing that really dates this movie is maybe some of the language and some of the uh, wardrobe. 
but um, Not necessarily. It, it 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 just works, you know. Now that our awful '80s fashion is back, it's right in the fold. But it's uh, <laughs> that's an interesting dynamic because kids today watch it and they still relate and they still dig it. Some don't like it, but some really right. connect and like, hey, let's. That's their favorite thing. So I get to meet two generations of Monster Squad fans at the same time. Like if my six year old knew what I was doing, I you know he'd flip out. Which that's that's almost mind boggling too. You know that's something to you know kind of it's hard to wrap your head around. But I've had enough of it over the last you know six seven ten years to learn how to put it in different kind of categories and really understand how to one respect that and then two appreciate it because not a lot of people get to get to be involved in something like that. So that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. So that's you guys. Something I wanted to ask you about. You kind of helped spearhead that, you know, 80s kid adventure scene. You know, you had Goonies, of course, and you had Monster Squad, Explorers, and it goes on. So how is it for you seeing uh, uh, movies like uh, Super 8 and shows like Stranger Things coming back around and kind of tapping into that vein again? You know, obviously uh, it's fun because those are fun movies and, and, and shows to watch. Um, two, whenever they mention you know, kind of the, you know, the pulls or the grabs or the connections that they have with something that you're involved in. Um, that means that you did something that had an impact on somebody else. And you're like, well, if we impacted J.J. Abrams, then that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, J.J. Abrams is cool anyway. Like, I'd love to hang out with J.J. Abrams. I'd love to work with J.J. Abrams. Uh, but J.J. Abrams is going to be just fine without me in his life. Um, I like the fact that there's fans out there that are just as jazzed or, but, you know, you get a lot of fans who are like, I saw Super 8, but it's no Monster Squad. I was like, don't compare. They're not, don't compare them. They are not the same thing. Don't do that. Enjoy Super 8 for what it is. Stranger Things is a different story. You know, I thought I enjoyed it. I loved the dripping of the nostalgia because, you know, the Duffer brothers were obviously from our generation. Actually, they're a little younger. I found this out later. They're a little younger, and they didn't see a lot of the stuff that they reference, uh, like, in real time. Like, they didn't see it, like, in the real time, right? They saw it later, which was sort of like, oh, that's weird. And But I really wanted the Duffer Brothers as an interview for the doc. And when I was making a list of kind of, like, who could I go out to that I don't know personally or have a one-off and see if they would just talk about how this movie influenced them or influenced kind of their 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 art or the way they saw, you know, culture and, uh, you know, and then talk about being a kid. And um, they said they'd never seen it. And so I was like, oh, then I guess I can't interview for how <laughs> Wow. But then I asked, I was like, have you ever seen Stranger Things? The thing that you made? <laughs> I was like, it's, it's, there's like direct lists. But then I realized that they had a big writer, they had a big writer's room and a lot of awesome writers. So that's where they get a lot of pull from different stuff. But I still want to hang out with the Duffer Brothers. I <laughs> love what they did with Stranger Things. It's great. Um, except for they cast Sean Astin in season two, except for me. <clears throat> um, uh, who, who's the pal? You know, Sean's great. But, um, you know, you know, and then it, it actually even filters down even more interesting. So you mentioned like Super 8, that's J.J. Abrams, what, you know, 10, 12 years ago or something. Um, Stranger Things, three, four years. Yeah, three, four years ago. But then there's even... You know, I, I get to meet a lot of cool people, especially, you know, going to awesome film festivals and genre stuff and appearances. But then when I was film festivaling uh, the documentary two summers ago, uh, there's a group out of out of Canada called RKSS that made Turbo Kid and they made yeah. um, they made Summer of 84. Uh -huh. And there is 
there are summer of 84 was fun yeah and it was a neighborhood kids adventure movie and all three of them are awesome they're they're pals of ours now and uh they're all french canadians and uh, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. The, the Monster Squad, this is this is our Monster Squad. We wanted to make our own version of Monster Squad, and it's pulled out. And so we get to hang out and uh, you know at different events. And I love those. I, it, it, it's it's two guys in a gallon. It's a, it's a three person filmmaking squad uh, that are French Canadians, RKSS, and they, they they're coming out with new stuff. And hopefully they have a summer of '85, which I just think they should keep doing. <laughs> just I just do a summer watched of that movie too. That's hilarious. Life. Like I yeah, just watched and then, that movie and I was like, man, I got to reach out to these guys. This is like Monster Squad. So they are super fun. They are awesome. Tell them I said hello. All right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like the, the cool character in that is just a, a straight, their version of Root. And, yeah. you know, it's it's a great movie. It's it's a fun movie. It's a, it's a, it's a fun movie. It, it, it gained a good audience. And so, to you know, to go around and see the impact of something that you did 30, 32 years ago, you know, on current filmmakers still – I, I see that all the time, and like I said, it, it, that's that's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. Andre, I hear you've got several uh, Monster Squad versus Goonies championship debate belts, and uh, <laughs> I just want you to detail that a little bit for us and break that debate down. Well, you know, it's um, I always start off by saying there's not really a debate, but if you have to do it, we'll you know we'll we'll champion it. Um, <laughs> look, the Goonies are great. Goonies are great. Uh, and Goonies fans are great because a lot of them are the same. There's no, there's there's not like Goonies fans that hate Monster Squad and Monster. It's it's not really a rivalry. Some Monster Squadians will will beat you up in the parking lot. But um, <laughs> look, the the Goonies the Goonies were great at saving their neighborhood from a developer. That's all I'm saying. It's great, great. They're great. Uh, we saved the world from fucking Dracula. So, you know, it's, uh, there's, you know, there, there's comparisons and then not, but, um, I mean, it, there's, you know, I'll let the fans decide, but, uh, love the Goonies, love, love Goonies, uh, fans, uh, cause a lot of them are Squad fans, you know, I, I don't hate on, on any of those. I mean, look, I auditioned for, you know, for the Goonies as well, just like, every, you know, back in the day, we were Which talking part? about audition process. Which uh, I believe I read for Mikey, uh, ironically. Nice. Um, but it was probably a, a, a year or two too young because Sean's a, Sean's younger brother Mac and I are the same age, and we he and I are friends. Uh, Sean and I were pals, but he's a little older. And Sean's great as Mikey, right? Um, I don't think I read for the Feldman role. I can't. I can't. I usually quite. I remember, but look, like I said, you're reading for two, three, four things every day back when you're a kid, and everybody reads for everything. So all of those all of those guys read for Monster Squad too. And, um, you know, we all read for everything else. And, you know, there's only there's only a handful of movies that I know that I auditioned and got close for that I, you know, was, you know, lamented that I didn't do. Uh, but you can't really kind of, you know, anybody that really dwells on that really wasn't reading for a lot of stuff. And when you're ripping out auditions left and right all day, it just kind of, you know, it, uh, it's, it, it's a different world to live in. But uh, it's fun. But look, the goon... But Goonies was a big studio picture also. Uh, it probably had the right rating. It had a giant campaign. It had two huge names behind it. Uh, and it was just a bunch of kids running around trying to defeat the Pizza Brothers. You know, that's you know, that's really <laughs> what the story was. But they were ultimately trying to save the neighborhood, which is great. Kids are stepping up because no one else is going to do it. The adults aren't going to save it from being a golf course. And um, they wanted to save their neighborhood. A lot of the kids' adventure movies of that time were that same story, whether you're trying to save your neighborhood or trying to save, 
your country, like in my favorite kids' adventure story of Red the Dawn. 80s, which is, Red, which is Red Dawn. Red Dawn's my favorite kids' adventure movie. And everybody's <laughs> like, that's not a kids' adventure movie. I was like, I is it not? This? It's the <laughs> ultimate kids' adventure movie. Uh, and, and or whether you're trying to save your adolescence and your friendships in my other favorite kids' adventure movie, which is Stand By Me. And that's a great movie because it's a great story. It's about friends and it's about standing up to, you know, those those four guys are trying to save each other from, you know, it's basically the, you know, asshole neighbor kids, you know, the older, the older, older jerks. Uh, And everybody's great in that movie. Red Dawn is trying to save their, their country from the rest of the world. And, you know, Goonies are trying to save their neighborhood. We're trying to save whatever it is from the forces of, you know, monster evil. So. That was a great theme. And, you know, when the adults aren't going to step up and do it, the kids got to. And I thought that was a – we need might need a little more of that, but I think we're toast and way past that. I don't think these kids <laughs> understand any of that now. They'll just be like, why would I want to save the world? I can call Uber and they'll save it for me. But uh, I don't let know. someone else do it. Yeah, we're That's screwed right. if uh, monsters come back in this day and age. They'll just like, where's where's the app to kill Dracula? <laughs> Are you a virgin? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's no, a weird thing. It's not many of those as kids anymore either. Like, it's no, totally like nobody it. can save the world anymore. Oh my gosh! <laughs> um, but you know, that's that's an interesting conversation that we always got about that aspect of why did it have to be the little girl that was the pure, you know, virgin that had, why couldn't any of the boy? Like, all we were all, you know, like you know, super studs. You know, I don't uh, think that was the case. Fighting the other monsters. I mean, watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Y'all are all uh, doing your thing and only the little girl, it was either the little girl <laughs> or uh, Captain Auschwitz. I forgot his name. The, the old Gary, guy. Gary Captain German, Auschwitz. Thank you. That's even better. <laughs> I just, I know. I'm just, I can't remember his name. I think <laughs> his name is Captain Auschwitz in the Bollywood version. Thank um, you. It just, yeah, I, I everybody else was saving the neighborhood. So it was either him or the little girl. Pretty sure the little girl fit the bill. That's all. And I think, um, but I love the fact that it ended up becoming a Shane Black character staple that the young, sassy mouth girl of the movie also ends up being the hero. And, you know, look, yeah, we had the monster one as a bunch of dorky boys that knew about monsters that banded together and saved everybody. But the hero of a movie is the little is the little sister, and you know she ultimately does all the right things, and you know is you know kind of you know talked over and dismissed the entire time until she's the only one that actually can save the world, and she knocks it out of the park. So we owe the entire world to Phoebe. <laughs> There's a lot of subtlety in that movie too. For instance, nobody died in the Goonies, and yet in Monster Squad, if I I haven't watched it in a year, but so it's been a little bit. But any regardless at the end, I mean, Rudy sits there and. Chuck Stakes at the Succubi, the vampiruses, if you will, where those yeah. used to be teenage girls. Yes. Now, I mean, hey, if Duncan Rieger looks at me when he's in a suit, take me. I do. I'm yours. But still, <laughs> I mean, Rudy's sitting there chucking steaks at those chicks, and they're dead. And then, like, the the guy says, it, he's like, you know, have you ever seen a monster? At, at the beginning of the movie, he's like, have you ever seen a monster? And he's like, you know, yes, I have, in fact, seen monsters. The camera pans down, and you see the tattoo on his arm. There's a lot of little subtleties in that film that you don't really see in other stuff. And I would guess you could call it, like, as you said, you know, Shane Blackisms, if you will, just little flourishes that are in that that you really don't see in other things. And it's just tainted enough, because like I said, the movie's kind of dark, 
but it just taints it just enough to ground the film and to keep it dark. Like, you, you wouldn't even notice it unless, as a kid, I didn't notice, like, yeah, I've seen monsters and probably eating popcorn and just look the other way and never paid attention to the tattoo. Whereas right. now, as an adult, and you see that, it's like, holy shit, that is, like, the most weighted statement. That, the most, that little line of dialogue has the most weight out of anything else in the whole film. It's just that one little sequence, and camera goes down, and you see the tattoo on his arm. It's like, holy shit. Okay, cool. It thanks. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, there's just there's little subtleties to it that you don't get in a lot of other films. Certainly, and, and like I said, that's a very Shane Black esque type thing to do, along with Fred being a history buff and you know a, a book reader. What's interesting is I think those those little things, like you said, grounded. Right? You know, I always call them sort of like the the, the gravity points. You know, going through the story that you said the same thing. You said they grounded. I always said to kind of add some weight or some some depth or deepness to it that it takes people, you know, takes them and says, wait, what was that? And so, you know, I've talked to, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, you know, kids that are, you know, our age, but when they were kids, they're like, I didn't know what that meant. I had to go mm-hmm. and ask someone or I looked it up and then they told me what it was. And I learned something that I realized was really scary because I was 10 years old. I didn't know about World War II at that time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about the Holocaust. I didn't know about Hitler and, and his and his group of right. dudes and uh, what they did to, you know, a major portion of, of the population of Europe. And but that was sort of a, not only was it a gateway to horror films, but it was a gateway to history. And not only with the reference to the Holocaust, but the reference to the monsters, because uh, those are all famous historical literary characters, yeah. plus movie and entertainment characters that are all grounded in his historical fact or fantasy and used over the last few decades prior to that time as physical manifestations of fear and anxiety in, in culture and society. And, you know, so they just got jumbled together. The Monster Squad is sort of like a fun, campy kids movie, but then it was balanced out with the really deep stuff. And, you know, because the, the impetus of the story really was Fred Decker saying, I've got an idea, and what would it look like if the Little Rascals fought the classic Universal Monsters? That, that's him. That's, <laughs> I to see that. That's what Monster Squad was to become. And, you know, the, the storyline of it is Shane Black and Fred were going to college together at the same time. <clears throat> and Shane wanted to be an actor. He moved to L.A. to be an actor. He said, that sounds like a fun story. Can I help you kind of like, let's write that. And so they started writing it. And, you know, they went through, <clears throat> you know, half a dozen drafts or two or whatever, and then they got it, <laughs> someone interested in a studio, buy it, and now they're, Fred had just directed his first movie, and now they go into this one, and, you know, the rest is history. And But it it's really rooted in historical fact and fantasy and, you know, famous characters in literature and, you know, what those kind of characters mean throughout culture over the last, you know, 100 years. You know, Shane drops in a lot of deep shit in there, too. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it balances out. But, uh, you know, like I said, it, it was a, it was a learning point and, and an eye opening thing to a lot of kids that saw it that didn't that didn't know. Um, but it also the other wider thing that it did in, in, in the genre for fans was it introduced them to the classic monsters, which they hadn't mm. really seen in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Because they kind of went away from those, and then so that kind of made a resurgence of the classic monsters and the monster tales. Dracula had always sort of, bit, but you hadn't really seen the Dracula story in in a while. But 
you know, the mummy and, and, and the Wolfman and, and Frankenstein's monster. And so now that sort of resurged in, you know, sort of some interest with kids and creature feature type, you know, because we had we had more sorority slasher movies in the right. 80s and we had like some deep summer camp slasher stuff in the late 70s. Uh, you know, we had Chainsaw and then, you know, you got Friday the 13th. I think the scariest line of horror, the scariest horror villain is probably Freddy Krueger because he doesn't really exist. Like he exists in a dream world. Like that's just that was a that was a great take on a monster. Um, but then it kind of made a resurgence of, of kind of these classic ones and they started reinventing them in a new way. And um, so we got to play in that sandbox for a little bit, which was cool, which became inspiration and motivation for young for filmmakers that it, or kids that ended up becoming filmmakers and writers and creature effects guys. I mean, there's a ton of people in this industry that are now super successful or big fans are being influenced by stuff that happened in that time. And one of them was Monster Squad. So that's kind of cool. Uh, it may have been on uh, DVD commentaries or something. Are there uh, tales about Duncan Rager staying in character on set, off camera? Are they true? And do you do you have any uh, instances of him popping up on you? Uh, the, the stories are completely accurate. He and Tom Newton, who played Frankenstein, are extremely um, extremely talented and very well trained method actors. So they, when they're on set or they're around, they're in character. And they stay that way. Um, some method character, some method actors even stay in character when they go home, you know, for the run of the shoot. But especially since they were tasked with playing these characters in certain ways, but also playing off of a group of kids, it was kind of planned out that they would one always stay in character, regardless. I mean, anyway, but especially around us, and we never saw them. We never saw them out of costume. And we certainly never saw them out of character when they're in costume, but we also never saw them not on set working in a scene. Like we, we were kept separate from everybody for that exact purpose with those two guys, because they wanted to keep that authenticity of I'm not doing a movie with Duncan, I'm doing a movie with Dracula, and I'm not you know doing a scene with Frank with Tom Noonan, this awesome scary ass character actor. But I'm doing a scene in a treehouse with Frankenstein's monster. I don't know, you know, who these people are. I've never seen them before. And so we were, we worked on my story of it is is uh, <laughs> we were probably shooting for a month or something, and we had been on set with you know Tom Noonan or Frankenstein's monster. Everybody asked me, goes, what was it like to work with Tom Noonan? I go, I don't know. I've never worked with Tom Noonan. I worked <laughs> with Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> and so after about a month of shooting or something, I was so tired of not knowing what this guy who this guy was that I went home and I went to my video store and I rented Manhunter to see what <laughs> he looked like. <laughs> and then I always wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't because he scared the shit out of me in Manhunter because he's a scary, scary dude. And Francis Dollarhide, that is one creepy dude. And But it's a great movie. But I might not have ever seen Manhunter if I hadn't had to do a movie with you know, Tom and then had to go rent it just to see what the man looked like because I, was, I never saw him. Neither, none of us did. And, you know, that's obviously as 13 and 14 year olds, you know what's going on. But for five and six year olds like Michael and Ashley, they don't really know what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, that's just kind of scary. Uh, now, Ashley was a professional. She understood that there were people, but it's still not comfortable. And uh, but, I, you know, I think they probably ended up handling it better than anybody. But. You know, that's a weird thing for, you know, two human beings to go around for three months and be Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. Like Tom Noonan's, that was, uh, Duncan had an hour or two of makeup a day 
and that's just simple stuff. Tom Noonan's applications were individual pieces and then put on and then spray coated and it's paint on and hair and, and the, everything in the hands. Um, that took like three hours a day to get into that. And it took like two hours to get out of it. So you got to add five hours every day to Tom Noonan's workday. And, you know, when you're dealing with kids on a set, you've got to get the kids stuff done first because then they have to leave because we can only be on the set for so many hours a day, depending on how old you are. And then once we got released, the adults had to stay and finish making the movie. So they went into the wee hours of the night sometimes. And, you know, the one story besides the Manhunter rental uh, is apparently it was late, late, late night. They finished and Tom Noonan, they're like, all right, well, let's get you out of this. He's like, I'm going home. And so we went home in his makeup <laughs> and uh, he said, I'll just come back tomorrow and you can like touch it up. But I'm, I'm not going through two hours of sitting down and taking this off right now. So he went home and slept in his makeup and came home. <laughs> and so I always just, I, I'm so glad he didn't like speed or run or run a stop sign or something going <laughs> home. Cause if he had gotten pulled over, he might not have made it to set the next day. Uh, Cause that would have been one scared cop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, see, True professional. They were, but they're they're fantastic actors, and everything that they do is just you know, they're either creepy or fantastic, and that's why they really put the effort into it. Um, the method thing, I was never trained in it. I understand it. I've seen it. I've worked in it, but I, I you know I didn't grow up you know becoming a method actor and being kind of you know really trained in the you know Stella Adler or the you know you know the original styles, which are all the kind of these original kind of you know, theater and movie back in the 20s and 30s uh, of how to act. I, I never really got into that. So I understand it, but I don't I do not do it. Um, but, you know, some people, that's the way they perform and they're fantastic at it. So, I, you know, it's whatever, whatever, whatever gets you to, you know, to, to do your thing as well as you can. So oh, yeah. I don't know if I'd stay in character as Frankenstein's monster for three months, but that's, uh, that's pretty More fun. power to him. But, but, um, even so much so that after um, I think it's on the special edition DVD when the movie was coming out on HBO like eight months later or something they asked Tom Noonan to do an interview for it because he was kind of the only known actor of this movie that bombed you know that had worked a bunch in films and so he said yes I'll do the interview but only in makeup and only in character <laughs> so he did a, he did like a just a like a news entertainment style interview hopped awesome. back in the makeup and did it just grunting for HD. <laughs> so, like oh uh, entertainment tonight it was for entertainment tonight and so like he did entertainment tonight video just going Ugh, uh. I got that's, like, that's insane good that's for awesome. him genius absolute genius so I know you guys have probably been affected by COVID but are there plans for a distribution for the documentary uh, you know, I'm, um, yes. The short answer is yes. The <laughs> backstory to the short answer is a little bit longer. We had actually, uh, we had a great film festival run. We, you know, won a handful of awards. It went all over the world and had a great response. And for a couple of reasons, right during the festival time, sort of all those, you know, we had a bunch of conversations and, and some offers and there was a little lull kind of right after the festival run, which was odd. Then, the, in 2019, it was just sort of like radio silent for a while. And then we were you know, we were worried sort of in this kind of, you just festivaled, but now it's been four, five, six months, and where's the, you know, where's that interest? Like, what happened? 
And we ended up having this great offer come, you know, in the, in the late, in the middle of the summer, we agreed to that offer. We went and went back in the studio and, and, and we did the post, you know, for deliverables, like you have to do a bunch of technical stuff to get it all ready to, to distribute. That deal ended up not happening, but we didn't realize that deal was not going to end up happening for another six months. Uh, Cause we were, we did all the work and we were just waiting. And then um, we found out right when, we found out right when COVID became a thing that that deal was not going forward. And so we had to start from square one in the middle of COVID oh. and which may or may not have been a bad thing or a good thing. It just delayed it more. So uh, I can't, we are at the tail end. We've been working on, we've been in the middle of the distribution deal for the last month and a half uh, doing the deliverables, get everything tweaked out and the paperwork's just got to get, you know, it, it's it's lo- the lawyers are going back and forth right now, and tweaking out the tweaks because that's what lawyers do. You got to tweak out tweaks, uh, <laughs> and hopefully here in, uh, I mean, any it's almost any day now. I think there'll there'll be a, a word to say or an announcement, but I can't. I, I don't I don't have the ability to say anything about it now. But uh, ho- I will update you guys, or you know, you hit me back in a week or two, and hopefully there'll be. Uh, you know, an addendum to this to this hangout session with the release date and where or how. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's still sort of the same kind of rollout. You know, I think there'll be a a, a TVOD plan, you know, for rental for a little bit or digital download. Uh, you can uh, buy a Blu-ray because uh, that's that's right. I, I think a lot of the collectors that have Monster Squad stuff on their shelf will want to put this next to that because there's still some physical media fans out there. Uh, and for those physical media fans, or even for the digital download with the special features, uh, we have about 60 minutes of extras that go with the documentary. Uh, it's almost a whole other. <laughs> it's almost a whole wow. other movie. Uh, but it's it's extended interviews and some fun stuff we did on the road because we shot so much footage in in 10 and a half months, and going all around the country and and even overseas during the production of the of the documentary. Uh, and a lot of the time was with, you know, Ryan and Ashley, a lot of times with at events and conventions and screenings, we actually got to one of the main vehicles in the documentary is traveling throughout the country uh, on a 17 city Alamo draft house tour. So I got to go back home again, really with the Alamos, because they've always sort of been, you know, kind of like home base for, you know, kind of Monster Squad or Monster Squad fans. But when we did that screening in 2006, there was only one Alamo. You know, and you fast forward to 2017, there's 25 across the country. And now there's like now there's like 32 across the country. And so they called me and we set up a 17 city 30th anniversary tour. And I brought along Ashley Bank, who played Phoebe and Ryan and Ashley's baby, who was like 16 months at the time. We went on we went on a three week trip for 17 cities in 17 days. But I also had my production crew with me. So we documented that that whole tour uh, professionally. And we use a lot of that in the doc. And then what was great is last October, when I thought our other deal of distribution was going to be launching right in October of last year, uh, I set up another 22-city Alamo tour with just the doc. So the doc got to go back to where it was actually started. And um, because on that the 30th anniversary tour two years ago, those fans were the first ones that, that learned that there was a documentary being made. And some of them are in it. And oh, cool. uh, so that was sort of thing. So I wanted to bring that back to all those fans to show them what they helped create. And uh, then I was supposed to be, and we're, it's distributing next week. 
and that didn't happen. And so they've got to wait a little bit. So, you know, I've been apologizing or just saying, hang in there, guys, hang in there. It's, it's not my fault. But uh, hopefully here, like I said, in, in the next couple of weeks, we'll have some news for everybody. But, yeah, it'll be a T-Bod. You'll be able to rent it or digital download. You can order the Blu-ray. Uh, it's going to go out, you know, on a ton of platforms. Uh, and then it'll have an S-Bod run. You know, uh, it's up to the distributor, you know, to find a home, whether it's Hulu or, or Netflix or Amazon. That's after the rental run. And then, you know, just kind of the regular process for movies that, uh, you know, get, you know, released out into the world. You know, that be on... You know, there's there's T-VOD, there's S-VOD, there's A-VOD, there's P-VOD, you know, there's all these VODs, and, um, you know, that's that's the jobs of the companies that are experts in that, but hopefully we'll be all over all of those VODs, you know, here in the next couple months, so I'm hang in there, let me know, you know, follow, follow me or follow you guys, I'll give you the updates, you know, your listeners and fans, you know, please either jump into my you know, Instagram or Twitter, and you can always follow at the squad doc because that's the home base social media for the movie itself, and we'll have updates there. But uh, it's uh, any any day now. <laughs> I'm guessing I the think. fact that with people like people are smart enough, especially anyone close to the industry or even tangential to the industry, the fact that you say you can't really say anything, but in a couple of weeks we might. Well, that's good news. That the fact that you say that you can't say anything means that there are things happening that you can't talk about. So in essence, I kind of take this as good news. If you, <laughs> for if you for the most part, true, because I also said that exact same thing last August. <laughs> that well, there again, so, because, you know, if it was like, you're never, absolutely never right. But so uh, hope I think we're further along in the process and this is going to actually happen. So it's, um, you know, it's, I'm not going to bad mouth the other, the other third party that had the other deal, but, uh, that's not what, you know, that's not what I'm about because, you know, maybe there'll be another project with them. But uh, it's, uh, you know, and that's just some amount of business and the industry works sometimes. Um, I wish we had gotten this out, you know, sooner to the fans. But, you know, look, we live in a different world now. We live in a, uh, a during COVID world. Everybody's at home. Everybody's watching stuff. Everybody wants to face, see things. Everybody wants to see things that make them feel a little bit better <laughs> than oh, yeah. their day right now which is just you know it's crazy that we have to you know kind of roll through the the current times that we're in um but that's exactly what you got to do you just got to roll with the times that you're in you can't you can't stop the time you can't control anything um you know just do the best you can and 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 enjoy the stuff that you enjoy and we'll see you on the other side and uh, we'll hang out after but um you know hopefully this can be something that people enjoy while they're uh you know waiting for the world to start turning again Oh, yes. When you guys do get it going down the road, or if it's in six months or in six days, uh, we'll definitely hit you guys back up, see if we can get you and Henry on just to talk about it. And uh, Oh, yeah. I'll ask it out there. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Please, you know, you've got my contact. Please hit me up again. Uh, you know, what's funny is, you know, I, I was telling you, you know, this last kind of two months has just been, I, I think it's a COVID thing, but, uh, you know, I, I've just been getting smashed with requests, you know, to do interviews and podcasts and, and, and news type shows and radio shows just because they're, I don't know if everybody's just having so much time. And I was like, well, you've gone down your list and finally gotten to me. Boy, you must be hurting for finding <laughs> it. But the other thing is a lot of us have the time as well. So it's a mutually workable type of thing. Right. And I was talking to a lot of podcast hosts over the last couple of weeks. I'm like, you know what? People are just bored or they want to talk about something. And like, I just hit them up and I get people that I never would have dreamed would have said yes to come on my podcast. Um, I'm usually open to just about every podcast because I enjoy talking about whatever they want to talk about. Look, I did one the other day and we, we barely talked about monster squad. So it was fun. It was, it was basically about growing up in the industry and you know, how different that was and, and working on multiple different shows and growing up in the teen magazine 
scene. So that was refreshing too. Even though I don't I don't tire of talking about Monster Squad because of the dynamic that it created with the fans, which is what ultimately led me to create a movie about that thing myself. So I'd be sort of a hypocrite if I said I didn't want to talk about anything Monster Squad. But as long as people still are, you know, inspired by it or it still affected them some way, um, you know, if you can give them a little bit of your time and 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 answer questions, uh, you know, I may have answered the same question 50 times before or 150 times, but it's the first time that you've asked it or it's the first time that someone's asked it in line at a convention and that's what it's about. So, you know, it's it's the only time, it's the first time and only time, you know, that you guys have gotten to talk about it with, you know, like in, with me present and hopefully it's not the last. So, you know, that's what it's about. And that's that's how it's meaningful to uh, to me on my side of it. So I appreciate you inviting me to to ramble on. Rapid fire time. This will be bait for next time. I just want to know. No questions. There, There's questions. But OK, don't think about it. No, nothing. What's your favorite movie? Uh, <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. I have a top five or so. I have a top five. That's all my favorite movie. But they run the gamut. So that's, that's a good the Empire Strikes Back. It's Hoosiers. It's Young Frankenstein. It's Airplane and Mr. Holland's Opus and Starship Troopers. Desert oh, Starship Troopers, albums. nice. And Castle. Yeah. What's a desert? <laughs> give me five Desert Island albums. You're on a Desert Island. What five albums are you taking with you? Ooh, I will take um, Purple Rain. I will take George Michael Faith. I will take. Um, I'll take a classical potpourri. Like anything classical, because I got to take those with me, <laughs> uh, like on Voyager, and then I got I'll uh, with S three. Um, I'll take um, ooh, I would say Born in the USA. I'll I'll hang that in the side. Uh, I said George Michael Faith. Ooh, 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 ooh. I know these are tough. Maybe straight out of Compton, and maybe we'll go with like uh, oh, uh, Bob Seger's greatest hits. Nice. Nintendo or Sega? Uh, Nintendo's the only game system I've ever owned besides an Atari 2600. Oh, favorite game? Now you're talking, you're talking my um, language. Um, wait, uh, yeah, Nintendo, oh, Nintendo. Nintendo, the very first one. Uh, uh, Nintendo Golf, the first one. Damn, nice. I was just playing that on my son the other day. We were talking about really? yeah, the, one came, the one that came with the console. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a retro head. I have my own little room of doom and with some of the games. And so my son raising him is at the expense of being a curmudgeon. It's one of those, you ain't going to grow up playing all your fancy stuff. You're going to grow up and learn to appreciate them. So (laughs) So we've grown up, you know, bonding over Nintendo and Super Nintendo and stuff. And so, yeah, we we love golf. Golf is one of the best ones that, and I'm trying to find there's a tee off game on the Dreamcast. It was like five bucks when it first came out, but it's, it's golf. But it's got that typical Sega prog power metal soundtracks that they used to always like in everything. You okay. would be in an item shop and it sounds like Ewe Malmsteen. It's just <laughs> I just call it a Sega music. Yeah, when you say NES golf man, that's badass. That's, that yeah, game. When when uh, I got that NES for I think Christmas of, of that year, I was uh, uh, thirteen, turning fourteen in April, and I had because ju- just after Monster Squad came out. No, sorry. Yeah, just after Monster Squad came out, and I had just rolled into another television show, and it was a big network TV show, and I got the chicken pox 
the week after I shot the pilot. And so I had to be written out of the next two episodes. And so I sat at home and played Hell Nintendo yeah. for like a hundred hours a day. And I got, I got golf to the point where I was shooting like 20 under on that NES golf. Cause I just knew how to do everything. And I'd be like draining on, like I'd be draining drives on like par threes. But I, I liked, uh, I liked uh, commando and I liked, uh, I mean, obviously original Mario Brothers, but Commando was probably my favorite. Um, and I didn't get a lot of games. I would borrow games. Uh, I had more fun back in the day with my Atari 2600. Because uh, those games were god-awfully great. Yours and, revenge, uh, baby! You know, until, uh, but that's even when I was young, because do you all know the the connection with me and Atari and the E.T. game? Do we do we are we this Ooh, intricate in the Andre Tower fan? Go, but now I want to hear this. Okay. Oh yeah. No. Um, so you know, obviously, you know, usually we've all seen Game Over, the the Zach Penn doc about the E.T. Atari game. You know, buried in Alamogordo, Mexico, and how that game tanked Atari because they made it. They made the programmer, you know, create that game in five weeks instead of five months to get it out for Christmas. And it, you know, it's it, it, look, the game sucked. It was a bad game, and it wasn't that guy's fault. Um, that guy helped build a billion-dollar company off his game designs, and he was forced to do a Christmas gift. Uh, the problem is, is I have tangentially on the internet been blamed for tanking Atari as a company because <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> this is the internet for you. But when they marketed the game, they kind of recreated a scene, the shed scene from E.T. Yeah. And they had a kid throw a ball in their game. Yeah, so the kid in the E.T. Atari commercial is me. No shit! So, yeah, I have been <laughs> blamed for tanking Atari. You tanked Atari! Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I didn't. Right. And uh, it, it's funny because that's how that, that E.T. Atari story comes in. I remember the audition. I remember the director. I got the got the commercial. We shot it on a soundstage for like two days. And it was very awesome because, you know, obviously E.T. was a, a, a movie about kids on bikes. Another good kids adventure movie. There you go, E.T. And uh, having to save their alien friend. Great story. Everybody comes together. Parents won't do it. The adults are crappy. The kids got to do it. But bikes were cool. And I was, boy, I think I was 10 when we shot that commercial. Maybe, yeah, 10. And uh, there was this awesome bike in the background. And I was like, oh, man, that's a, it was a mongoose. And I was like, oh, man, I just have a crappy dirt bike. But a mongoose is like the next level of cool <laughs> kid stuff, right? And I asked, the, I asked the director, and I was like, hey, is there any way that, like, I could either, you know, get that bike or buy that bike? Like, you know, what's the deal? And on the last day of shooting, uh, the director's name was Mark Story, young guy, said, hey, you know, I, I know you asked me about the bike, and um, – uh, but it, that's a rental. It's a prop rental that we don't own. So, like, we can't sell it to you or, or I'd give it to you if if I could. I was like, okay, no problem. Thanks. I appreciate it. And he goes, but if you look right over there, and I turned around, and the prop guy was rolling in this brand new red diamond back. And they had gone out and bought me a brand new, like, $400 diamond back dirt bike, which was even better than Mongoose. Yeah. And I was like, what is happening and they gave it to me as a gift. And so that was my dirt bike growing up. It was this awesome Diamondback that the Damn. production of this Atari commercial bought me. That was awesome. And then the Atari client rep, you know, was there and said, and here's 
a game system. So I got my 2600. Like they gave me a 2600. <laughs> so, so I got my, I got my Atari from Atari, and then she said, and I'm gonna ship you every game made. And I was like, that is awesome. And she never did. Oh, <laughs> you deserve to go bankrupt. You hear me, lady? It's your fault. You do that to a kid. So, That's what you get. I don't know if she lost my address or just said, yeah, I bullshitted that kid to get out of here. She's, she's, he gave him a system. What else does he want? Uh, and I was like, every single game, please. But I love the 2600 because I think my favorite was uh, either Adventure or I loved Haunted House. I love Pit. I love Pitfall, I love Haunted House, I love, uh, yeah, (laughs) Defender was cool, but, like, to me, Defender on Atari wasn't quite the same as the arcade game, but the arcade game of Defender was, like, that was a heavy game, that was a hard game to play, and uh, that was was a big kid game to me, (laughs) but it was fun. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's my Atari thing. Sorry, sorry, I rambled about that. But Hell a lot no, of people know about it, and, so, and some people don't. But uh, I I was surprised to see myself in Zach Penn's documentary, which is actually a great documentary, uh, Game Over, about the myth that you know once the 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 game came out and sucked, that they took it off the shelves and buried like a million cartridges in a landfill in New Mexico. <laughs> And uh, I thought it was a good documentary, and he, he showed the commercial in there a little bit. But the other tie-in that made it awesome with the Atari thing is I'm now friends with, friendly and professional friends with Adam F. Goldberg, who created the show The Goldbergs, nice. uh, which is you know just basically about a film nerd kid in the 80s you know, growing up in Pennsylvania. Adam, Gold, Adam F. Goldberg had tweeted out uh, to all of his fan base, which was quite big because the show had been going on for years he's like hey does anybody know any of these two people in this old commercial because we're trying to use it in a show in the show and we don't we can't we don't know who they are and his whole fan base responded or not his whole fan base but his fan base responded that's the kid in that commercial is andre gower because it was the et atari commercial and he said that's andre gower who you also know from the monster squad and so adam's office and then i had to file through all of these like lead tweets to get to his original one and i answered him on twitter i said hey there this is me and yes i'm confirming just so you know that that is me i'm the kid in the commercial and like his office called me that afternoon (laughs) and asked if they um if i would sign a, a you know a release waiver so they could use the use the uh episode on uh use the commercial on an episode and i was like absolutely no problem you know email it and i'll sign it you can do it and uh, I don't mind at all being on your show, even as a 10-year-old in an old retro commercial, because I loved the show. And ironically, at the same time, I said, um, and by the way, uh, I was actually going to reach out to Adam, who I don't know, uh, but I'm doing a documentary about the impact and the fandom of Monster Squad. Do you think that's something he would be interested in? And then he called me the very next day and jumped all on board, was really supportive uh, he usually doesn't do stuff, you know, on camera or in front of the audience because that's he's just not he's, that's not his thing. But he absolutely said he'll do an interview, and he insisted that we do it on his set. So I got to shoot his interview in Adams in Little Adams from the show bedroom, which has all his great retro toys and everything. In. Uh, and he talked about these great stories about Monster Squad. So he's and uh, he got so involved and wanted to support it that we actually, you know, we 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 made him a producer on the documentary. And his uh, editor uh, friend uh, made our trailer, 
and uh, our tra- I love our trailer because it's it's it, it's really well done, and you can watch it on at thesquaddoc.com. It, uh, it's a guy named Jeff York just cut together this awesome trailer based on our documentary, and it just plays like a it plays like an '80s type of like video game mashup like awesome trailer. And then Adam and I are, are, are pals now because of that E.T. Atari commercial that he needed, you know, a version of. And the, the, even the funniest thing is that he's like, hey, do you know, do you have, do you know of any other copies of this commercial? Because the only one we can find is a shitty version on YouTube and we just can't clean it up enough to make it worthwhile. And I said, well, you know what's interesting is I've got a VHS copy of that commercial given to me by the, like, that we have had since we made it uh it's in my mom's like cabinet <laughs> like i'd have to have my sister go over and get it and fedex it to you do you want it she's like absolutely so the version of the commercial that got used in the episode was actually my personal vhs copy of that commercial oh, cool. that i had wow. to hand to his editor so it's uh that that's that was a fun story and and now that just leads to you know meeting great people like adam f goldberg and, and him being in the documentary and helping out with it and uh being a part of it so you, know, you just never know where cool things are going to happen and, you know and For that's real. just one of the rando you know, the random things. Well, Andre, I think we've uh, held you hostage for long enough and you probably <laughs> oh, got to get back to it. And, uh, and for the record, you are not at the bottom of our list. You're at the top of our oh, list. Well, I appreciate it. I, th- I appreciate it. No, actually, not, yeah, that he, have a, not, not that you guys would have a shitty list. I would just say yeah. in general. <laughs> no, it, uh, Justin's uh, been looking forward to like, this one's been the big one for him. So yeah, we, we, sweating, we appreciate, we appreciate oh, well, you cool. coming on and like anytime you want, you are more than welcome here, but yeah. This has been all adjusted, man. You, you've made his day. So it's been oh, well, Thank you for your hey time. Guys, I, now tell me where you, um, oh, you know what we'll do is like, well, since you do it in post, like, hey, man, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, come back soon, anytime, and love to talk about it. All right. <laughs> all right. Then, we'll, then we'll talk about other stuff. Episode's over. adjourn.